Hello and welcome to another edition of Positive Leadership, the podcast that helps you grow as an individual, a leader, and ultimately as a global citizen. In politics, you serve people. In the end, those are your bosses. And so when people fuss around you, treating you like an important person, it's important to always remember this show is not about me. Servant leadership is an essential element of positive leadership. By putting the needs of others first and prioritizing collaboration and community building, leaders can help to create a more just, equitable, and sustainable future for all. My guest today, Dr. Fumzile Mlambo-Nguka, truly embodies the characteristics of a servant leader. Humility, empathy, and a willingness and commitment to listen and learn from others. She grew up in Durban, in South Africa, living under the apartheid regime drove her activism. And since then, she has dedicated her career to issues of human rights, equality, and social justice. A former United Nations Undersecretary General and Executive Director of UN Women, she was the first woman to hold the position of Deputy President, the highest-ranking female political leader in the whole history of South Africa. Women leaders have been underrepresented and undervalued for so long. So it was a real privilege to speak to Punzile to find out more about her leadership journey and philosophy. We dig into lots of different areas in this discussion. The woman who inspires your activism, the leadership skills needed when your focus is change, the value and benefits of mentoring, and of helping communities embrace and use new technology. There really is something for everyone in this episode, and it's packed with wisdom and so much learning. So make sure you stay with us until the very end. Punzile, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today. Thank you very much. It's good to see you. Punzile, I was very interested to read a little uh, about your parents, who I believe had a huge influence on you, and who instilled in you a certain leadership. So can you tell us more about those early years and where your incredible dedication to leading and serving others come from? Well, my mother in particular uh, was a nurse, but also a community worker. She taught literacy in our dining room, <laughs> and uh, we used to have to support her in, in that work. She was active in, in our church and uh, was engaged with young mothers on family planning mm. in particular. Now, as we know, reproductive rights yes. are such yes. a key issue for, for women. So it felt to me in those early days that taking part in what is happening in your community is just a way of life. <laughs> I think I only realized uh, when I was much older mm. that uh, these are things you you choose to do or not to do. Yeah. I grew up knowing that this is just an extension of my life. Well, it's kind of a calling if I hear you well, right? I mean, uh, seeing your mom as a role model, as you said, both in uh, at home but also in a community, I'm sure uh, has given you and your siblings a lot to think about early early on. Also... My father was a teacher 
a lot of times at home, it was school meetings of parents coming in many cases to tell him that they didn't have money to pay the school fees. (laughs) And so it was constant managing of all (laughs) those issues. You would have thought that our home was an office (laughs) or an NGO. (laughs) (laughs) No, I understand why after. We'll come back to that later. You've been obviously interested in joining NGOs and setting up your own foundation. So very involved at the core of your family already in the roots of your community with a teacher, nurses, I mean, really taking care of others. Yeah, yeah. So 1976 was, I believe, the first year of university for you, but it was also a very special year for the student uprising in South Africa. There was a lot of brutality, lots of students lost their lives. We are part of a generation who devoted themselves to fighting for the country, to an apartheid, and to address all manner of human rights. So in your life, and I know you had many events going on through your life, how significant was that lived experience of the student uprising in driving you forward to seek for a change? Yes, uh, 1976 uh, was a very big year in South Africa and for students in particular, because whether you were at high school or at university, All of us were affected with uh, both schools uh, closing as well as all universities in South Africa closing. And that was the time when we had to sit as young people to consider what will our role be Mm. in the struggle and what is needed from, from us. And looking back now, maybe in not a clever way, we decided uh, liberation first, education last, uh-huh. which was not quite uh, the thing that our parents uh, would have <laughs> chosen for us. But uh, it felt like it is not possible yeah. to spend so much time at school and not carry on with the project uh, for, for liberation. But of course, uh, the call at that time for the ANC was mm. that They do not want a a country in which uh, there is no education. So we have to figure out how to do both. But you made it clear with your friends at the time that liberation had to come first as a first fight. Yes, and that was a popular slogan, you know. And of course, quite a number of of the students uh, of my time dropped out of school. Mm. At that time, uh, they left the country, went into into exile to, to dedicate themselves to the struggle. I also left the country, mm. but I went to study in in, in Lesotho. Yeah. But that gave me more time to be in close contact mm. with the, uh, many of uh, my colleagues who were in exile, yes. who yes. we needed to uh, confer with and plan mm. with. So I sort of was the lucky one who managed to do both. Mm. And so, uh, should we say, uh, Fuzile, that uh, at that time, really, for you, there was no turning back, right? Absolutely. That's what I was was very clear Mm. about, that I can never do anything that takes me away from the struggle. Mm. If I was to be in education where there was no possibility to confront uh, apartheid, I probably would have 
wanted to focus uh, on apartheid. I mean, in a sort of a funny way. Yeah. I had a, a boyfriend who jilted me huh. because she said, I am tired of this struggle of yours. <laughs> There's nothing to talk about with you. <laughs> that is all we talk about. I'm sorry. This is the only obsession so you this have. Was, that was my first time to face rejection. <laughs> Even as a young woman, it was clear Funzile was laser-focused on achieving objectives. After graduating from university with a degree in arts and education, she began a career in news development and education. She faced various challenges, including the lack of resources and support available to educators. So she pushed for change and improvements in the education system, all the while remaining an active member of the anti-apartheid movement and the youth wing of the ANC. In 1994, following South Africa's first democratic elections, Funzile became a member of parliament and played a key role in the drafting and implementation of a number of laws and policies aimed at promoting women's empowerment. Being part of the first wave of politicians to enter parliament, post-apartheid must have been so exciting. And yet, there was an enormous amount of work that needed to be done. So I wanted to ask Penzile about the particular leadership skills required in that moment to help the country through that historic period of change. To be engaged in any organization, including political organization, is one of the best platforms mm. on which you can acquire leadership skills. Mm. In the struggle where your focus is change, that also prepares you for leadership in the community. Yeah. So... I I can say the things that I, I learned in the struggle, how to negotiate and mm. relate to the people I was with, yes. how to handle disagreement because we were fighting for the same things. So even if you disagreed, you needed to find a consensus of some sort so that you can yes. all yes. move together. Recognizing that the work that you do mm. It must not necessarily give you benefits. Mm. It, it is delivering on the objectives you are about that is much more important. Mm. Also, that teaches you to have just all your energy yes. thrown into whatever you are, you are trying to achieve. So a lot of the leadership mm. skills that one needed, you pick them up. Hmm. in the process of doing things. But also, you learn from people that hmm. you are with, isn't it? They, you make mistakes, people yeah. tolerate you and teach you. You fall, you rise. Yes. That yes. is the best lesson. And you then also develop the need to do the same to others, the ones coming after you. Hmm. As you are bringing the next generation, so to say, hmm that sharpens your own leadership yeah. because you are able to think about where you are going and who you are bringing with you. Well, that sounds like a wonderful accelerated leadership kind of learning in flight, right? As you did all of that. I mean, would you, would you mind sharing with us maybe a moment of coaching you got from someone 
uh, supporting you. As you may have made a mistake, because obviously you are young, you are well, driven with a purpose, and you learn that, hey, maybe Funzile, you need to do something a bit differently now, moving forward. You know, I, I somebody that stands up for me yes. um, is a lady called Bergelia Bam. Mm. She was working at the World Council of Churches yes. at the time. Okay. And this is a very male, that's a very male dominated mm. environment, mm. as you know, in, in those times, yes. it was even worse. But uh, she held her own very mm. well there yes. and uh, was very impressive to me. But the one thing that I learned from her was how important it is to be humble. Mm. Humility. Mm. Uh, absolutely. And not to take yourself so serious that you can't even <laughs> laugh at yourself. I love that. <laughs> uh, so for her, every step that you took, no matter how much in public or in, in a place of importance you were, mm. you always have to put the people in front of you, above you. What sets the seven leader apart is that they put the well-being and success of those they lead and manage before their own personal ambitions. Their success is measured by other people's successes. So they have a greater incentive to lead by example and invest in the growth of others. They are in front, but leading from behind. Someone else who influenced Ponzile leadership approach was Nelson Mandela. In 1996, President Mandela appointed Fonzile Deputy Minister in the Department of Trade and Industry. It was an area she had not worked in before, and Mandela could see she was nervous. So he took her aside and gave her some very personal advice. So she, and he just told me that, you know, I have been a prisoner for a long time uh, so no one trained me uh, on how to be a president, hmm. but I was determined to learn and to do it. So go and be a deputy minister of trade and industry. You will learn. We're all here. Hmm. We will support you. Hmm. The rest was history. <laughs> wow, that's a wonderful, wonderful moment of uh, deep confidence, of course, shown by mm. your leadership and the way you've been reflecting on it. You know, sometimes just one person saying, I've got your back. Exactly what you said. Yeah. You can do this. Absolutely. Can, can, can make all the difference, right? In helping someone feel confident to give them the boost they need to succeed. So because the fact is there's lots, lots of people who feel unsupported in their lives. Mm. So mm. I know you've mm. been taking mentoring very seriously. I mean, who have been your most important mentors? You mentioned already one example before, right? And what have you got out of them? And because I think mentorship is a two-way street, right? What have you got out of your mentees as well? So if you could share both sides of the coin in terms of you as a mentor and, and from a mentee perspective as well. Yeah, actually, you know, I find that with, when uh, you are mentoring, you absolutely uh, get more out mm. of it. Yes. Especially if your mentee is younger than you, because mm. there's certain freshness of perspectives that you, 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 you get there. It's important that in that uh, relationship, 
you are able to provide your insights mm -hmm. that uh, you have gained because of the experience of having lived longer, yeah. as well as showing them uh, what they are likely to come up against as, mm -hmm. as they uh, go back. And always going back to paraphrase to them and mm -hmm. say, uh, this is why I did this and this and this, then this is where it is taking me. So remember, when you, you ever find yourself in this situation, it will lead you to, to this. I always find that, that taking time to do that is always important. And then sometimes what you have taken for granted is yes. the results you are expecting is rejected or questioned. Hmm. And that also opens up a, a new world for you that you have never thought of, new possibilities. Yes. And that's the freshness uh, mm. that comes with the, with the innocent inquiry that uh, kind of like says, hmm, I, I hear what you're saying, but mm -mm, I, I think you could also do it this way. <laughs> yeah. So that yeah. that that engagement I find is always uh, is always important, but also I think it's always important as you are mentoring to be reminding yourself and your mentor that wherever you climb, yes. make sure you are not climbing alone. Always lift as you climb, because yeah. it's very lonely at the top. Always make sure that. Uh, you never put yourself in the situation of being the only one, the only one. You know, you get into this, I am the only woman who has done this. I'm the only that, that is absolutely uh, denying society, you know, the talent that is out the there. Talent that surround you, that <laughs> supporting you in that ascension, yes. yes. Yeah, because for also for people of my generation, hmm. I don't think that there has been any step that you have taken that is significant hmm. without the help of somebody, yes. without other people opening the way. They may not have succeeded. They might have gone before you preparing the ground yes. and never <laughs> benefiting from preparing the ground. And you are the one who gets there and you are able to get the full benefit of the work they've always done. So it's always important to always remember that you are, you are where you are because somebody else got there first and made it possible that you. future generations will take yes. it to the next level. No, I think wonderful confirmation of humility as a core value and, and growing on the shoulders of others, giants, not you, but others <laughs> who made it yeah, possible absolutely. for you. Uh, I'm with you, Funzile. Now, I'd like to change direction and talk to you about uh, the importance of upskilling and digital literacy in particular. In a previous podcast, I spoke with Reshma Sojani, who so far sent a disproportionate numbers of women to men in computer programming class in the US. She then went in, uh, on to designing and running out an initiative called Girls Who Code. You may have heard about this initiative, I guess. Yes. Designed to increase by millions the number of women who can actually code in the world. And here at Microsoft, you know, in my company, we believe everyone mm. deserves access to the skills, knowledge, opportunity to achieve more, including translating those skills into meaningful jobs. 
So since leaving office, I know you've set up a foundation, the Umlambo Foundation, right? Which is yes. dedicated to digital literacy, training for educators. You are focusing on schools improvement, you told me the other day, and teachers skilling and building capacity as well, including, including behavioral training, such as positive masculinity, you told me the other day as well. Mm. So can you tell me more about why you decided to set up that foundation in the first place? And what kind of impact are you are you the most proud of? Yeah, yes. Uh, my foundation works uh, in schools to improve the quality of learning and 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 teaching, mm. and uh, we believe that uh, the use of technology in education is crucial mm. in order to uh, expand the access to knowledge that teachers may need for themselves, yeah. that yeah. learners also need for themselves so that uh, people are not only dependent on the lessons they get in class with a teacher in front of them on their own. They can also be knowledge seekers and knowledge yeah. creators and they can collaborate with other people in their schools and, far, and people who are far mm. away uh, from them. And of course, you probably know much better than, than I do as Microsoft mm -hmm. that uh, the future uh, will be and mm -hmm. is already for those who know how to use technology effectively. And uh, for me, it was important to close this gap in our schooling system and yeah. making sure that the gender digital divide in the mm. schools is also closed, making sure that when we manage to get gadgets, you make yeah. sure that the girls get them first. Yes. Because at home, mm. if they buy a phone, uh, the first one to get it will be a boy. And also, I wanted to, uh, to push as many teachers mm. as possible to be competent users of technology because yes. they are role models to the learners. When the girls see that their female teacher is doing this so well, that is a good lesson. And I am very excited to see mm -hmm. that in the schools we work with, the female teachers are just leading. Wow. Okay. <laughs> they are really, really doing well. That huh. is uh, encouraging. But also we teach the children mm. to take the skills they pick up at school home, especially yes. to their moms. So they can educate their moms. Don't just use the phone for talking. Yes. You can also do this. You can also do this. And in the majority, women uh, use uh, their, 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 their phones to check medical information as well as uh, financial literacy. Of course. So. Because uh, for, for many people, uh, Parents mm. also, uh, the receipt and exchange mm. of money on the phones is now a way of life. So it's important that uh, mm. uh, your grandmother, your yes. aunt <laughs> uh, knows how to receive this money, knows how to send you yes. money. So it's a very dynamic learning space to yeah. try and impart all those skills to the teachers, to the children, to the yes. parents. I love the way Funzile talks about the work of a Umlambo Foundation and the importance of creating a virtuous circle, teaching the value of the technology and services all the way from the teachers 
to the kids, to the parents, and to the community. Empowering them and helping them to use technology to do more in their lives. It is something I and, and we as a company at Microsoft and many of my guests, including Sal Khan, are very passionate about. And with generative AI, there's so much exciting potential to help people, adults, and children have self-paced learning and also to develop critical thinking skills, thinking through issues collaboratively, that is creating a huge value in the community. It's so wonderful to see the impact Fanzilla is having in education, helping people move beyond a basic understanding of new technologies and getting them to proficiency. You know, women's, let's shift gears now and talk again, but even more deeply about women's rights. I mean, women's rights are human rights proclaimed then First Lady Hillary Clinton in September 1985 at the United Nations Force World Conference on Women in Beijing. And his groundbreaking speech marked the turning point for feminism in an internationally force toward gender equality, articulating women's rights as a basic fundamental concept of civil rights. During this conference, 189 countries unanimously adopted the Beijing Declaration and a platform for action for women's equality. In 2013, you, Fun became United Nations Undersecretary General and executive director of UN Women. You played a leading role in the development of the sustainable development goals ad adopted by the UN's two years later in 2015, which include a very specific chapter and goal on gender equality. Now, reaching that goal today and now is really a question of implementation and scaling. It has proven uh, to be very hard, especially through the pandemic and beyond the pandemic now, actually. So let me ask you the following question, given, of course, the incredible uh, fight you took on and, and the leadership you, you developed in that area. What is your perspective on how we could push ourselves harder to really drive that gender equity and global diversity in the world so that we can accelerate our progress towards achieving the different sustainable development goals? Because I think if we don't get that gender equity as an anchor, as a base, <laughs> For many of the other challenges, well, we miss the opportunity to empower a lot more people to achieve those incredible goals. So what would you urge all of us to do differently? Yeah. No, now my perspective, and I feel mm -hmm. very strongly about that, is that I am not focusing on women now. Mm. I'm focusing on men. men. Oh, to change men's behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because after all, gender equality is a man's issue because they started the nonsense. Hmm. So you hmm. have to get yeah. the man to be engaged in hmm. an effective way and uh, to provide the possibility for women to reach the greater heights. Hmm. Otherwise, if you think about uh, gender-based violence, yes. if men were to stop beating up women, hmm. the problem is solved. Men lead institutions, countries, and company, and they choose other men to lead with them and do a bad job together. Yeah. If men were to bring women and mix and not just include the people who look like them, mm -hmm. we could have something that will work for everyone. But you need to convince the men 
the man must embrace the notion yes. of equality, you know, much better and then take the the ne- huh. next step. If you think about child marriage, yes. it's men who marry children. Yes. It is only girls who find themselves mm. in relationships mm. they don't want that are forced into them. Mm. If men, fathers, yeah. brothers yeah. can decide that nothing of this sort will happen to my mm. child. Mm. And I, as a man, I would also never do this to a child of someone else. Yeah. That changes the game. So there's so much work that we have <laughs> to do on men. I think feminists of my generation, yeah. Yeah. we, I think we missed it <laughs> by uh, having neglected to engage men for such a long time. And now yeah. we really have to focus on men. Oh, it's wonderful. And, I mean, you and I had a discussion previously to this podcast, Mzile, where you told me about this uh, curriculum I think you've developed in your university, right, for positive masculinity. Would you mind elaborating what it is? Because I think you are trying to address at the core of the issue uh, with with boys, actually. Yes, yes. Positive masculinity for boys and men is really uh, engaging men about... uh, the need for them to be proud of their masculinity, but not to make it imposing to anyone. Mm. To look at their um, masculinity as an equal set of values that they could have Mm. towards women or people of any other gender. Men in in married Mm. situations never doing anything at home to Mm. help to run Mm. a home Mm. Uh, because they think that it is masculine to just sit and (laughs) eat and do nothing. You see in rural areas, young Mm. girls Mm. fetching water, little girls carrying big buckets of (laughs) water and muscular men sitting at home (laughs) uh, watching these little girls doing all of this positive masculinity is going to the river yourself yes. and making sure that you do not give that as a task to your child <laughs> who needs to play because, you know, the child is still growing. Positive masculinity <laughs> is getting at home and washing the dishes <laughs> uh, and not expecting that somebody else uh, it's a given job for somebody else. It's never a job for me. So it's, it's finding ways yeah. to, bring all of those things at home that uh, we actually need to be working together. Well, that's a big agenda. And I'm sure that with all the work you're doing with your foundation, there's a lot to expect from that work and learning to be applied more broadly as well across South Africa. Actually, honestly, all of our countries actually goes far beyond South Africa. So great that you have this leadership in in that area, Funzile. You know, it's been said many times about you that your purpose and passion for your work is grounded in your personal experiences. And we discussed some of those experiences together already. And I spoke recently with Harvard Professor Ranji Gulati, who has been authoring a book called Deep Purpose. And it was on my podcast recently. And he talked about the difficulties in embedding deep purpose for all employees working in large organizations. That could be actually a government organization, that could be an NGO, that could be a, a business as well. 
how the message can get lost and purpose decays exponentially as you go down the hierarchy, right, from the top to the, to the very first line. So from your own experience, what advice can you give to our listeners about how you go about aligning people's desires with the purpose organization that they belong to, that they work for and support? What has been your own approach from the leadership standpoint to get people working with you at the UN, in your foundation, in the government, <laughs> to really be aligned with a single purpose? Most people uh, are good people. Hmm. They want to do the right thing. Yes. They want their work to matter, hmm. uh, to bring about changes. Yeah. I think that if you are in, in a leadership or in service, it is always important uh, to create an environment where everyone can feel that they are serving that purpose and give them the tools mm. to make them get on with that. Yeah. Because you get much more For in sure. the job. Sure. If your employees see that they are serving a purpose and that is appreciated, it helps them to propel. Also throw them at the deep end yeah. So that they can learn new skills, they mm. can swim, mm. swim up and yeah. come up with, with new ideas and feel a sense of achievement and conquering mm. something which they, they, will be, they will be doing. So that every year when they look at what have I done this year, oh my goodness, look at how many people we have given water to. Mm. Uh, look at how many children we have enabled to stay at schools. Yeah. So the macro purpose and the micro purpose, yes. those are important. Give people a possibility to do it in chunks, but also to see the bigger picture. But most important for mm. me is also to teach people to have the responsibility mm. to be self-propelling yes. so that you are not looking over them every time. Yeah. It is obviously very distressing when you have to be checking all the time, the best work environment mm. is when you know that when you've said, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> These are the tools. This is the path for you. And then you just support people yes. uh, in the background to make sure that they realize their purpose. I love what Funzile says here. And it's really at the fundamentals of positive leadership which is really about empowering people to achieve more and letting them grow, enabling them to take more control and to become stronger and more independent. Something else I wanted to speak to Fazili about is what it means to be a leader in times of great uncertainty. Recently, she was part of the African Union's mediation, which facilitated the peace agreement between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. The war, which had been going on for two years, had killed thousands of people and left an estimated 9 million people in humanitarian disaster. There are no guarantees that a deal would be signed and the stakes were incredibly high. So what kind of leadership was required to make that peace deal a reality? And what lessons could Fanzile share from that very special experience? My big takeaway from this experience is firstly, listen. 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 Mm. 
just listen because everybody wants to feel that their story was understood. Yeah. yeah. Both sides had stories. And in some cases, they both tell the same story, but in such different way. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but listen and make sure that uh, nobody feels that their story is not valid. Yeah. yeah. So respecting that. The second thing is uh, convincing people about uh, the losses that they will uh, accumulate as a result of being in a war, constantly bringing the examples of what they stand to lose as well as what they stand uh, to gain. Mm. But making sure that you show them, yeah. uh, I mean, what steps they can take, can take in order to go in the right uh, direction. And to be tough with mm. them. Be tough. Okay. Yeah. Ultimately, uh, it is obviously their own country. So um, uh, there, there's a way in which uh, you cannot force them on on everything. What I noticed in the mm. case of, of Ethiopia yeah. was that for the Tigrins, mm. the death and destruction in their community was too much. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that was what was driving them. They just wanted bloodshed to be over. Yeah. On the part of the government of Ethiopia, the economic losses mm. they were suffering yeah. as a result had reached a point where it mm -hmm. was impossible. And of course, we were coming out of COVID yeah. and so on. So the more they were getting isolated, mm. it was the more everything that they were trying to do to, to rebuild the country was just not going anywhere. So it's also important that both sides yeah. know and feel that mm. uh, the losses are just too much for them. No, I lo lo love, love your insights, Fenzile, talking about listening, listening deeply the stories of both sides of the table, uh, getting them to understand the perspective on losses and how much they've lost and they can loss <laughs> until there's a win-win, actually. And uh, and really, at the end of the day, really bringing some toughness as well in the process to make sure that they understand that the mediator can be tough as well to get to where the situation needs to go to. So uh, wonderful, uh, again, <laughs> leadership uh, lesson. Now, I'd like, you know, let's couple of final questions. I'd like to move to education, which I think is a passion. Of, I know it's a passion of yours. We already discussed some of that. And it's such a passion as you know I have as well. Early on in your childhood, I think you wanted to become a teacher, actually. And of course, now you're the chancellor of the University of uh, Joburg. And it's such a position, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on how to transform higher education. You know, I happen to be a shadow with you as well, the chairman of a global business school called Schema. Uh, that certifies 10,000 students across campuses in five continents, including a campus in Stellenbosch in South Africa, actually. <laughs> and, yes, I was, so, I was so surprised to learn about that. I went to Google it. <laughs> okay, you find it. <laughs> yes. You know, and six months, six months, six months ago, we launched a first ever massive global online uh, AI-enabled consultation called Use Talks. And use talks represent open-ended questions to 15, 29 years old kids across the world. 
And we got today more than 600,000 contributions, comments from 197 countries. I wanted to share with you some early insights we had to get you to reflect on that. Again, we have not fully disclosed that, but in a kind of a early, <laughs> early themes. Um, you know, what did they tell us across the world? They tell us, first, we want to make a difference in the world. <laughs> we want more humanity. We want to address climate change. Uh, the climate challenge, of course. We want to be in a position to change for the better. And we want and we need to make higher education accessible to many more of us, many more who don't have access. So as you hear those comments, and I'm sure many more you have from South Africa as well and across Africa, how would you redesign if you had, you know, basically a blank sheet of paper, you were to redesign the higher education system in response to the world use, again, talks and comments, and in perspective as well, the UN, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that you know so well, because you are part of that, what would you do? How would it look like in your university and higher ed system everywhere in the world? What would you do? Well, you know, certainly this is the time to reimagine education and reimagine the future. And if I were to redesign education, Firstly, would be about ensuring access mm. and, and making it as accessible as possible to all the children with a particular focus on the children who are poor, because yeah. this is the one thing that can get them out of poverty. Yes. And with the technology we have now, you can facilitate learning for anybody, anywhere, anytime. Exactly. So I would be Access. wanting to provide a parallel yep. accessible learning mechanisms that makes education accessible, higher education accessible to anyone who needs it. Yes. yes. Secondly, I think I would have a generic course hmm. at first year that all the students must huh. do, huh. which has something to do with emotional intelligence, mm. hum humanity, yes. and all the things that we build society in. Mm. I think what in South Africa we call Ubuntu. Ubuntu, yes. Ubuntu. yes. I, would, yes. I would have that as a generic cause so that it doesn't matter what you have come to do. Mm. If you have been able to work hard to qualify to be at a higher education institution, you have to have Ubuntu. I love that. Ubuntu because that's was... always a minority of the people in any yes. country who make it to higher education. So you have to be very graceful to the rest of society because you are this lucky one. Love those two uh, fundamental principles, um, Fuzili. Love them a lot, actually. And I'm sure, I'm sure we'll get back, to, get back to you in the future to talk more about what we can do together. <laughs> no, <laughs> let, let me get to almost a close. You are someone, and I can feel it during this discussion we had together, with a very strong positive attitude. We can feel it. I can even feel the vibes all the way from Yoburg to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's, to me, it's part of positive leadership. It's essential for any success you want to have with others in, in whatever you do in your life. So is, it, is that positive attitude or positive leadership something that has come to you easily or something that you had to develop? And if so, how do you cultivate or do you nurture and maintain such a positive mindset day after day? And particularly at times where you have to really tackle some very tough, sometimes 
tragic issues that we discussed during the podcast. How do you do that? How do you do that? I have to say, you know, the lady that I spoke to, Brigelia uh, Bam, yes, was one person who was very positive <laughs> uh, in an infectious way. Yes. <laughs> I learned a lot about uh, staying positive hmm. because being negative and dwelling on the things that you cannot do Waste, waste, yes. waste the energy you need yes, exactly. to do the things you can do. Yes. So preserve all your energy and your attitude so that that which you can do, you can do well. Hmm. Just having the capacity to accept your failures. Yes. And do that gracefully. Sad as it may be. Yes. yes. Uh, disappointing as it may be. <laughs> but accept it and focus on what you can do. Absolutely. And that is what uh, uh, propels me not to dwell too much of what I couldn't do yeah. and be the best at what I can do. Focus on what focus you can control. You can. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and bring your very best to what you can actually yeah. control. Your very Absolutely. best. Absolutely. I am lucky I have some education. I am lucky I am not disabled, I can do many things uh, with my hands, with my mind. So I am here, therefore, in this world for a reason. <laughs> and I have to make sure that I fulfill my purpose of being here. Because after all, I am just renting my space right now on <laughs> earth in order to prepare it for the future generations. So I have to pay my dues and my dues is doing the best for the people that are around me now. I can't imagine any better conclusion to our discussion. I got so much out of speaking to Fazile and so many things to reflect on for my own servant leadership practice. And I totally agree with the sentiment she expressed just then, that we are renting our space on earth, which means and we have the responsibility to nurture and protect our society and our environment. And it reminds me of that famous saying, we did not inherit our future from our ancestors, we have borrowed it from our children. And I really wish you the very best in all the capacities you have, and so thank you so much for your time today, Fonzile. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Passive Leadership with me, Jean-Philippe Courtois. If you'd like more great tips to help you grow as an individual, a leader, and ultimately as a global citizen, head over to my LinkedIn page to subscribe to my newsletter, Positive Leadership and You. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please do leave a nice comment or rating and share it with many of your friends. Goodbye. Goodbye.